Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Murder and the Key Man, The Birth of Television Trilogy, Book One, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. Murder and skullduggery abound behind the scenes in early TV. In one of the first crime novels ever set behind the scenes of big-time television, Clarence Buddington Kelland has plotted a thrilling adventure of danger and death which climaxes in a series of fast-moving surprises. Peter Mortain, one of the youngest directors in this very young medium, was beleaguered enough directing the first episode of the most expensive variety show ever produced. He had a cast whose first appearance on television made them skittish, a thousand technical details to handle, and a star who was also his boss. The blonde soprano was smooth. The blonde soprano was smooth, sultry. She was also mysteriously hired at the last minute and was taking the best songs and skits away from the other cast members and claiming them as her own. From the first moment she joined the Todd Arundel show, at least one member of the cast suspected her presence meant big-time trouble. That suspicion became a certainty when a corpse called on the young director. Peter directed the next rehearsal of his coast-to-coast -coast television review, knowing that somehow the glamorous soprano had picked up some nasty acquaintances. He worried that his back was the target for the next knife. Peter found out too fast why the sensational blonde was hired, and why their boss was paying her particular attention, and why she took a certain non-professional interest in Peter, for a price that added up to his own life. Unwittingly, he had become the key man in a nightmare intrigue. Murder and the Key Man shows one of the master storytellers of all time at his exciting best, populated with Kellen's vivid, memorable characters, with the signature brilliant, strong-minded heroine, eccentric romance, and show-stopper of a grandmother who solves most of the case herself. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Murder and the Key Man. Chapter One Take Five These were welcome words to everyone in the huge studio even to Peter Morton, the producer-director who spoke them, but especially to the three video cameramen whose eyes were weary from incessant concentration. Since ten o'clock they had been rehearsing commercials, repeating, altering details, pausing to discuss or suggest some tiny bit of business to the point of exhaustion. The orchestra laid down their instruments and lighted cigarettes or walked out for a breath of air. Electricians, precariously treading the grid, ceased calling cabalistically to the mates below such code as Drive 4A or 26C. The pushers deserted the handles of the dollies upon which cameras were mounted. Stage carpenters ceased hammering, and the men in the monitor room behind the big glass window relaxed and sent out for coffee. To a casual spectator, the morning had looked like nothing but chaos. Certainly there was no semblance of coherent entertainment or of a stage set as background for performers. If one sat in the spectator's gallery, he saw nothing that, by any stretch of the imagination, could be construed as a show or any part of a show. Indeed, he saw nothing but an immense number of lights 
dangling like stalactites from the grid. Fluorescent lights, floods, spots pouring their heat downward upon the stage. His view was impeded by long booms with microphones dangling at their extremities and by the enormous bulk of the crane that carried camera number one, a veritable monster, affectionately called by that name by the crew. They spoke of it as the monster. It moved soundlessly on its rubber tires and gyrated and elevated the camera high in the air or lowered it close to the floor at command, as if it were sentient. Bits of scenery were set in place in what seemed a helter-skelter sort of way. In one place was a picket fence with a gate over which grew vines of roses, and next to it was a fragment of a living room, and next to that a cluster of palm trees in black silhouette, and then, surprisingly, a wheel of fortune ten feet high, and in another spot a white enameled ice box and an ironing board and an electric iron. It simply did not make sense, not to a human spectator, but it did make sense to the eyes of the video cameras, which selected exactly what they wanted to see and transmit, excluding everything else beyond the constricted frame of the monitor screen. To add to the general chaos, there were representatives of four different organizations present, working in remarkable harmony, but all with different objectives. There were people from the broadcasting company, people from the advertising agency, people from the sponsor, and the cast and technicians and musicians and executives who were parts of the Todd Arundel company which gave the performance. Todd Arundel was not there. He left to subordinates this preliminary drudgery and would not appear until the moment arrived to pull the show together to touch it with the hand of his genius and give it perfection, to make it an Arundel production with Arundel character, to add that intangible something which only he seemed to bestow, but which was as recognizable in every performance he touched as if he had stamped it with a visible trademark. Todd Arundel was a demigod to his troupe, loved and feared and pampered and admired, a temperamental perfectionist who might blast an erring performer or throw a tantrum with hair on end and eyes blazing, but who within the hour was sure to seek out his victim and apologize so sweetly and abjectly that sores never remained to fester. He had built an organization which was a team, with team spirit and loyalty, and he held it together and directed it and molded it and was respected and adored by it. He dominated it. He ruled with an iron hand. But to his genius for perfection was added a gracious talent for handling those he commanded and winning their confidence, their respect, almost their worship. Now, for the first time, he was bringing his organization to the television screen. He was venturing into a new field, a visible field. He was bringing his orchestra, his glee club, his soloists, himself into the homes of nobody knew how many millions of homes, and risking the reputation of 20 years in a field that was new, experimental, without laws, rules, or precedents, a field which nobody understood, of which everybody stood in awe, 
and in which thousands of interested and intelligent men and women were seeking a formula. It was a new art, differing from all other arts, of vast potential, but not a living human being knew the foundations upon which the art must rest. Peter Morton walked back toward the door to the monitor room, but as he stepped into the passageway, he heard a voice raised in anger, and peering toward the exit, he saw a man struggling in the detaining hands of the special policeman who guarded the door. I got to see him, the man shouted, striving to jerk away from the policeman. I tell you, I've got to see him. Hold it, son, the officer said, retaining his grip. I tell you, he ain't here. He ain't been here today. The young man continued to thrash and struggle. He is here. I know he's here. I've got to see him. Peter Morton's long, lanky figure strode to the door. He spoke to the officer in a low, soft voice, the voice that was habitual to him even in moments of stress. What's the trouble, Fred? he asked. This character wants in to see Mr. Arundel. Peter smiled his patient, winsome smile. Mr. Arundel isn't here, he said. He will not be here until tomorrow. You seem very urgent. Would it be anything important? The young man, still in the officer's grip, became quiet. Peter had that effect upon excited people. His face worked. His eyes were wide and frightened. But he must be here. He must be here, he said, and his voice rising to falsetto. I am Peter Morton, said the director. Perhaps I can give him a message. You're not lying? You're telling the truth? I'm telling the truth, said Peter. The young man drooped. His expression became one of despair. The officer loosened his grip. The young man turned away and walked draggingly toward the street without another word. One of them nuts, said the officer. Peter peered after the young man. Something told him he should follow and ask questions, but he heard a voice calling him from the monitor room door and checked the impulse. He didn't look like a nut, Fred, he said. Has he been around here before? Not that I've seen. He had a familiar look. Peter shrugged and went back to his problems, which were many. As he walked, he thought to himself that the intruder was a frightened man. He never had seen an individual so close to the threshold of panic, and there was something vaguely familiar about his face with its greenish eyes and narrow mouth and high cheekbones. It was lovely Marcia Clisson, the choreographer, who wanted to discuss a point of timing with him while the dozen young men and women who were to take part in the dance waited for a decision. The boys were coatless. The girls, for the most part, wore slacks. Miss Clisson's legs were concealed by shapeless overalls, rolled halfway to the knee, and a shirt whose tail tried to escape from the trouser band. No one looking at her then would have guessed at the grace and beauty of her figure. The point in doubt was settled, and she gave her attention to the group. Peter climbed the few steps into the monitor room and sat down at his place in the middle of the long desk. Someone brought him coffee and a paper cup, and he sat back and sighed and closed his eyes for a moment. 
The scriptwriter thrust his head through the door. How's that maple idea of mine? He asked. Have you talked it over with the boss? He likes it, Peter said. Get something on paper. We're set for five weeks. This could come along in six. Give some thought to how we can integrate the commercials. Right. The door shut and Peter closed his eyes again and relaxed. These were crucial hours for him and for his career. Whether he would remain, whether he would climb, depended upon this first show that was to be televised tomorrow night. He was only 27, but then so many men in important television spots were young. He had graduated from Michigan and had been an instructor in diction and music for a year. His interest had been in dramatics now that football days were forever behind him and he had accepted an offer from a broadcasting station in Detroit. There he had been shunted off into television, which a lot of folks considered was like being sent to Siberia. But Peter had welcomed it. For ten months he had produced and directed The Marshland Show, which had been so successful that Peter had been brought to New York, and then, perhaps by good luck, had been turned over to Todd Arundel who needed a producer-director for his foray into television. In the stage and concert and radio days, Todd had not needed such an official, but the technical details and drudgery of a visual show made it necessary. Two human beings could not have differed more than Peter Morton and Todd Arundel. Peter was two inches over six feet in height and seemed, because of his boyish face, years younger than his age. He was placid, or seemed always to be placid. He never lifted his voice, was always gentle and considerate, seldom giving direct orders. But any person, technician, musician, or principal would have been in grievous error if he had sought to take advantage of his gentle courtesy. First names and careless endearing epithets come easily and casually to people in show business, but Peter did not use first names or speak to the female performance as sweetheart or darling. His diction was Midwestern, but cultivated. He made no patent effort to be dignified, and somehow he was dignified. Todd Arundel liked him, which was important, because Todd, temperamental as an April day, would have no one about him that he did not take a fancy to. When Todd was hiring a new performer, the latter must first pass the test of pleasing personality before the maestro would commence to catechize him about ability and musical knowledge. Only if Todd could assure himself that he would like to have the applicant around him did he make his searching, demanding examination into musical knowledge, ability to read swiftly at sight. Lastly came the test of voice or skill upon an instrument. The screen of the monitor on the wall above the broad window was blank, as were the smaller screens of the battery of monitors on the table below. Miss Clisson continued to drill her group in their routine. The orchestra sat idle. The door opened again, and Todd Arundel came briskly into the room. Peter was surprised. What brings you here this afternoon, Mr. Arundel? he asked. Arundel was a slender man, not tall who might have been fifty years old. His hair was not short, nor was it eccentrically long. His face was mobile and arresting rather than handsome, 
and his hair was commencing to grizzle above the ears, so much so that the makeup people had discussed methods of concealing this ravage of middle age. He walked to the step silently and sat down slowly in the seat at Peter's left. I've taken on a new soprano, Todd said abruptly. There was something in the way he said it that disturbed Peter. He waited. I auditioned her myself, said the maestro. This in itself was so unusual as to be startling. It was routine for applicants to pass through other hands before being brought to Todd's attention. She is a capable musician, Todd went on. Reads music at sight surprisingly well. Rather a startling voice and presence. She is lovely to look at. What sort of soprano? Peter asked. Coloratura. Peter wondered what they were going to do with another coloratura. Todd Arundel was not a man to waste good dollars on superfluous talent. What about Miss Conway? He asked. Miss Conway was as near to being the star of the troupe as anyone approached that distinction. She was the darling of the organization, petted, protected, loved by everybody for her sweetness and her graciousness and her spontaneous friendliness and modesty. How, wondered Peter, would she welcome a rival? We'll work that out, Todd said with a trace of uneasiness. I know you're a diplomat, Mr. Arundel, Peter said, but handling two coloraturas? Is she coming on a permanent basis or for something special? Permanent, Todd said and compressed his lips. You haven't mentioned her name. It's an odd name, Peter. Elia Anor. Uh-oh, Peter said softly. Why the uh-oh? asked Todd. The original Elia Anor was a pretty troublesome lady, sir. She married a couple of kings and was mother to a few. A stormy lady and considerably sultry, if ancient gossip doesn't lie. She stirred things up from Jerusalem and Constantinople to Paris and London. Her husband, the King of England, shut her up in a stout castle to keep her from upsetting the apple cart. The lady was something of a wildcat, but a beautiful wildcat. What? asked Todd, beetling his brows. Are you gabbling about Eleanor? Eleanor, as we spell it today. Eleanor of Aquitaine, mother of Richard Coeur de Lyon. Peter grinned to cover his uneasiness. I hope your soprano has copied nothing but her name. Todd Arundel brooded. He stared down at the control buttons on the desk between his elbows with somber eyes. Peter, he said after a long silence, I built this organization. There's nothing like it. The good feeling, the team play, the permanence. Some have been with us 25 years. His voice dropped lower and there was in it a throb of emotion. It's unique. I created it and I created the atmosphere in which it works. A family, a big family. Peter, I'd cut off my right hand before I'd destroy or even mar the thing we've got. Remember that, Peter. When people join me, they don't merely take a job. They start a career. There's no uncertainty for them. They're on permanent salary and good salary. 
They appreciate it. There's, he hesitated for a word. Esprit de corps, supplied Peter. Even more than that, Todd said. Nothing, nothing must be allowed to mess it up. Peter ventured. Mr. Arundel, you're worried about this girl? I never, said Todd, was more worried about anything in my life. Then Peter asked reasonably, why take her on? Pete, Todd said gloomily, there's only one reason why a man does the thing he doesn't want to do. And what is that, sir? Necessity, Todd said grimly. He turned in that charming, friendly, disarming way of his and placed his hand on Peter's shoulder. Maybe, son, he said, you'll find the going tough. You're in command when I'm not here. I'm relying on you, Pete. I'm depending on you to rally around. We'll work it out, Peter said, repeating Todd's phrase. We'll keep things under control. I've always believed I could do exactly that, Todd said gravely. Did you ever see a cyclone, Peter? When I was a boy. Did you feel you could control it? I was terrified, Peter answered. Yes, Todd answered. That's what the uncontrollable does to you. It terrifies you. He breathed deeply, moved his shoulders and stood up. Carry on, son, he said and moved toward the door. Oh, Mr. Arundel, Peter said, halting the maestro. Yes, a man tried to muscle in this afternoon to see you. He made quite a business of it. Fred stopped him, of course. He was hysterical. He had to see you, almost as if it were a matter of life and death. Todd turned slowly and looked up over the desk at Peter. I don't know who he was or what he wanted, he said. But maybe you're right. Maybe it was a matter of life and death. Then he went out and closed the door behind him. Chilling depression settled upon Peter. Here was a thing he did not understand. He knew a sense of something impending, of blind apprehension. Or he thought, hopefully, maybe the boss was merely in the throes of some temperamental upset. He turned back to the script with its multitude of interlineations, marginal notes, and stage directions. But he found concentration difficult. There had been no artistic temperament here. Whatever existed was real. Todd Arundel had found the uncontrollable to be terrifying. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Murder and the Key Man. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.